get started tonight, I would love to just share a little bit about myself so you know who it is that is speaking to you. Like I said, I'm married to Brandon. We've been married for five years now, which is just like wild to me. Time goes really fast, so enjoy your youth, you know, while you have it. <laughs> the most exciting part of my life right now is our little girl, Emma. Um, so on July 4th, yes, July 4th, uh, we had Emma, and she's about to turn three months old tomorrow, so we're pretty obsessed with her. Also, I think it's funny, because like, I have all these friends um, on like Facebook and Instagram and stuff, who have babies and they post these like beautiful pictures of them like swaddled and like with bows and I'm like going through my phone trying to find a picture of her and like these are our pictures. <laughs> so we think we think she has personality. I love love the expressions. Um, if you ask me what it's like being a parent, I would tell you that being a parent is the most challenging but also the best thing that I've ever gotten to do in my life. And I would also say that I'm a little bit obsessed with my daughter. I keep telling Brandon that we're like becoming like walking stereotypes because everything that you make fun of parents for, like we do now. <laughs> so for example, um, Emma has like a hard time turning her neck to the left. She just has like the muscles on the right side are a little bit tight. And so we have to do like these little baby stretches with her to like help her loosen up and stuff. And the other day she was like playing on her play mat and I look over and of her own accord, without any help, she had turned her head to the left. And guys, you would have thought this child won like an Olympic gold medal. <laughs> because I was like, Brandon, oh my gosh, she's turning her head to the left. And then we were like, you're the best baby ever. We love you so much. <laughs> so it's pretty fun how much love the Lord gives you for your kids just like right away. Um, a few other fun facts about me. I am super extroverted. So it's kind of funny because everyone always thinks Brandon is the extrovert, but it's actually me. Um, so I, I love hanging out with people. I love, like, talking. I especially love getting coffee. So if anyone, you know, wants to go to wineries and hang out and talk and get coffee, I love that. I also love being outside and being active. Um, so anytime I can, like, get outside and walk my dog or play volleyball or ride horses, I love all those kind of things. And then last but definitely not least, I deeply love the Lord, and I'm so grateful get to get to serve him here at Central. But enough about me. Tonight we're going to continue in our series, uh, we're going through the book of Matthew. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that we've gone through the first four chapters of Matthew now. Uh, week one, Brandon gave a great introduction to the book, and he shared that Matthew is primarily written to a Jewish audience. And his purpose in writing this book is to confirm for them that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But that just means that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that he would one day send a king to destroy evil forever. Okay, so that was, that was week number one. And then last week, Taylor taught on Matthew chapter 2 to 4, and he shared all about how expectations matter when it comes to Jesus. You guys remember that? Last week? Jesus was not necessarily what people expected back then, and he's not necessarily what we expect today. And Taylor challenged us to come with an open posture toward who Jesus is and what he taught. Which actually sets us up great for tonight, um, because we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 and 6, and we're going through the first half of the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of Jesus' most famous teachings. So we're actually going to take a look at what Jesus taught. But first, would you guys go ahead and pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, um, thank you, God, so much for bringing us all here tonight, Lord. Thank you so much um, that we get to come and learn about you and read your word together. God, thank you for friendships, whether they're old or new. And um, thank you, Lord, that for the opportunity to come to Central and take classes and 
yeah, Jesus, we just love you, and um, we're excited to learn about you tonight, Jesus. And so pray that you would help us to focus and to, like, put anything else that might be distracting aside for now and just be able to hear from you and what you want to say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, whether or not you would say that you follow Jesus, probably most of us at some point have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty famous. But just because we've heard of it doesn't necessarily mean that we know what Jesus is saying, right? So what exactly is the point of the sermon, and why is it such a big deal? Well, essentially, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' inaugural address as king, okay? It's where he explains the values of God's kingdom. So week one of the quarter, we learned how the Israelites had been waiting for centuries for God to send a king to save them. And you might remember that in their minds, they were thinking that God was going to send, like, a literal king who was, gonna who was going to come and save them from, like, the oppressive government ruling over them. So when Jesus arrives on the scene announcing, hey, I am that person, I am that king, they get pretty excited. Wouldn't you? Like, if you've been waiting for centuries for someone? But as we know, Jesus was not what they expected at all. And, as we're going to learn tonight, the kingdom values that he introduced were not what they expected either. How do we know this? Well, quite simply, it tells us. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 to 29, um, and see what it says. But first, can I actually have my Bible passers come down? Um, if you guys are here tonight and you want a Bible, we have Bibles for you. So just raise your hand and these guys will get one to you. And that is yours to keep if you'd like to keep it, or if you just want to borrow it for the night, that is great too. But it's going to help you to have a Bible, because we're actually going to like turn to things. Um, references will be on the screen, but you'll want a Bible to be able to look stuff up. Okay, so flip over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 to 29. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, so we're actually skipping to the end at the beginning. And it says... When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. I'm going to read that one more time. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Okay, so it says they were amazed. And if we think about, like, the English word amazed, it's kind of a weak word, right? Like, I don't know. We say God is amazing. We say meeting my first child was amazing when she was born. But also, like, brownies are amazing. <laughs> and ice cream is amazing. And the sunshine is amazing. I don't know. Amazing kind of loses its value a little bit, right? But if we look at, like, the Greek word, the original Greek word, what this meant was out of mind. So when we read that word amazed, what it actually meant in the original language was out of mind or as we might say today, mind blown, okay? So they had their minds blown, first because the authority with which Jesus taught, and second because what he taught was so radically countercultural. Okay, the values of God ki God's kingdom were nothing like they had ever heard before. They were completely unexpected. And so for time's sake tonight, we're not going to actually like read, <coughs> excuse me, read Jesus' whole sermon, but we are going to take a look at three examples from it. And as we read these three examples, I want you guys to pay attention to how countercultural Jesus' teaching is. Sound good? Okay. So the first example we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 22. Go ahead and turn over there. Matthew 5, 21 to 22. 
It says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Whew, okay. <laughs> Starting off kind of intense here tonight, right? We got talking about murder, talking about judgment, talking about hell, fun stuff. Welcome to Kyle's house. <laughs> um, so what is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is referencing an Old Testament command that his audience would have been very, very familiar with. He's the, and the command is do not murder, okay? Do not murder. Pretty straightforward, don't kill anyone. Everyone would have known this. But then Jesus goes on to say that in his kingdom, verbally murdering someone is equally punishable as physical murder. Okay, verbally murdering someone is equally punishable as physical murder. Tearing someone down with your words or slandering them is on the same level as killing someone. It makes us kind of uncomfortable, doesn't it? It makes me uncomfortable because it's pretty easy to go about our day and avoid murdering someone, right? Like, hopefully that's not a major temptation for all of us. But verbally harming someone is a lot more likely, right? So I don't know about you guys, but for me, um, I'm probably most tempted to, like, verbally harm someone when I'm driving. Anyone else? <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, so there's been a lot of moments recently when we've been driving home from something, and about halfway there or halfway home, Miss Emma decides to start screaming. <laughs> and let me tell you, there's nothing that will make you want to drive faster than having a screaming child in the backseat of your car. If you haven't experienced this yet, I'm sure you will one day. It's, um, it's not recommended. And inevitably, when this happens, there is someone who is, like, driving exactly the 25-mile-an-hour speed limit in Ellensburg. Like, not 26, just, like, 25. Or they're driving, like, 23 miles an hour. And I'm like, guys, it's already 25 miles an hour. Do we have to go any slower? And in these moments, let me tell you, it is, like, so easy for me to say some very not nice things about these people. You guys feel me? Anyone else? Yeah. Driving. Tough. <laughs> so this might, be, this might be kind of like a silly example, right? Kind of silly. But I think especially when we're put in an uncomfortable situation, whether it's having a screaming child in your backseat or something more serious, it can be so easy to degrade other people with our words. So for example, if a friend says something that hurts us, how often are we tempted to say something hurtful back? Right? You hurt me, now I'm going to lash back at you. Or if we're angry at someone, isn't it tempting to say something bad about them to someone else? Right? And what's more, our culture says that these things are okay. If you get hurt by someone, hurt them back. Get revenge. If someone is a jerk to you, make sure everyone else knows it. Make sure that you everyone else knows how frustrated you are with that person. Right? Our culture says these things are okay. But Jesus is counter-cultural. He calls people in his kingdom to have such high regard for other human beings that every single word we say about someone is full of truth and full of respect. Okay? No matter what someone does to us, no matter how angry they make us, there's no room for degrading another person in God's kingdom. Are you guys starting to see why their minds were blown? Jesus said some radical stuff. 
And I'd love for all of us to take Jesus seriously too and ask the question, how am I doing at loving others with my words? How am I doing at loving others with my words? When I speak, do I degrade other people? Do I use my words to build up or do I use my words to tear down? When I'm angry, do I process my anger in a healthy way or do I try to do harm with my words? Okay, so that's our first example. Um, Now we're going to go to our second example, which is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30. So go ahead and flip over there. It says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right, another light, happy passage for us tonight. <laughs> Whew. Again, here Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law, which is pretty straightforward. Do not commit adultery. Matthew's audience would have been very familiar with this one as well. And Jesus, again, takes this basic command and takes it to the next level. So he says, not only should you not commit adultery, but in my kingdom, don't even look with lust at another human being. And if you do, gouge out your eye and throw it away. Last week, Taylor asked us to set aside our expectations and assumption of who Jesus is. Do you guys remember that? He encouraged us to come to the Bible and experience who Jesus is from Matthew's eyewitness account. Can you guys see from this teaching why that is so important? As I was writing this message, this section made me laugh a little bit, not because it's funny, but like out of irony. Because growing up, I pictured Jesus in like such a stereotypical Sunday school way. Like, you know, blonde hair, mild disposition, surrounded by fluffy sheep. Anyone else? I don't know. This is about how I did Sunday school. Um, But I think like Jesus was so intense. Okay? Here he's talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands. Could you imagine being in the crowd listening to this? Like, no wonder their minds were blown. They were probably, like, deeply uncomfortable. Now, is Jesus actually teaching that we should harm ourselves physically? No, of course Jesus is not teaching that we should harm ourselves physically. But he's using this image to show how serious he is about his kingdom values. Okay? He's using this image to show how serious he is about his kingdom values. And this image should cause us to pay close attention, because especially in American culture, Lusting after another person, or in other words, um, looking at someone to gratify your own sexual desire is so common. And I'd say not only is it common, I think it's even become like a celebrated part of our culture. If you think about the most popular TV shows um, and movies, they're full of sexually explicit imagery. Or if you think about social media influencers, influencers, there we go, (laughs) social media influencers, um, it's so common for them to use their bodies to gain attention. Or if you read fan fiction, pretty much any book, or pretty much any book series, um, it's usually full of sexual scenes. And even video games give you the option to partake in sexual activities. And I think these things just go to show that our culture is so comfortable with lust, even to the point of celebrating it. But then we have Jesus saying that in his kingdom, it is better to not have eyes. It is better to gouge them out, in fact, than to lust. So we'd better take that seriously. And guys, I think lust can show up in a lot of different ways. 
whether it's using pornography, whether it's reading sexually explicit books, looking at someone in, in an unhelpful way as you like walk across campus or allowing yourself to get obsessed with an actor or actress because of their looks. There's a lot of different ways that lust can creep into our lives, right? And so if you resonate with any of these things tonight, I want to encourage you, like, don't just brush them under the rug. Because Jesus' point here, when he says, gouge out your eyes or cut off your hands, is that we need to take radical action to get this out of our lives. Okay? So don't just, like, brush it under the rug. Talk to someone. Um, during worship tonight is a great time. Like, grab someone that you trust. Grab a friend. Grab your uh, facilitator. And, like, talk to them and say, like, hey, I think this is something I'm struggling with. Please help me. Please pray for me. And I want to encourage you, like, if that is you and you resonate with this stuff, like, know that you're not alone in this. I think something that Satan tries to get us to think a lot is um, that you're going to, like, be alone or you're weird for struggling with these things, and that's just not true. So I'd encourage you tonight, um, if you resonate with any of that, just grab someone, talk to them, pray together. Okay, our third and last example is in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 to 8. says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So, excuse me, um, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so here again, Jesus is referencing two practices that would have been very common for his audience at the time. He's talking about giving, and he's talking about prayer, right? Um, if you were a Jew back in the day, it would have been assumed that part of following God would include the giving of your resources and praying on a regular basis. But once again, Jesus is taking these like basic, base-level commands, base-level parts of their life, and elevating them to the next level. He says, when you do these things, you better make sure you have the right motives. You have to have the right motives. It's not good enough to just give or to pray. You have to have the correct heart posture when doing these. And this actually brings us to the last point I want to make tonight, and that is that Jesus cares first and foremost about the posture of our hearts. Okay, he cares first and foremost about the posture of our hearts. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, um, especially if you guys, like, later this week, go back through and read through it in its entirety, I think sometimes it's easy, easy to see, like, this list of do's and don'ts. It's like, don't murder, don't speak poorly about people, don't commit adultery, don't lust, do love people, do help the poor, do pray. But that's not, like, the entirety of what Jesus is getting at here, okay? He isn't interested in having a kingdom of people who are just going through the motions checking off boxes. He wants his followers to have their hearts shaped to look like him. If you look at chapter 548, uh, chapter 548, it says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, 
And I love the footnote in the NIV study Bible that expands on this. It says, Jesus sets up the high ideal of perfect or complete love, including both attitudes and actions. This is God's high standard for his people, empowered by the presence of Jesus in their midst. I'm going to read that one more time. Jesus sets up the high ideal of perfect or complete love, including both attitudes and actions. This is God's high standard for his people, empowered by the presence of Jesus in their midst. And I think this is actually what the whole Sermon on the Mount boils down to. Jesus' audience was mind-blown because Jesus called them to have such high moral ideals that went beyond all like cultural um, expectations, both in their attitudes and their actions. Okay, You don't have one without the other. You have to have attitude and you have to have action. So no longer could they pat themselves on the back because they didn't commit, a commit adultery or because they didn't murder someone or because they gave to the poor or because they prayed that day. Those weren't things that they could be like, sweet, check it off the list, did that. Jesus taught that their inner life, their thoughts, their motivations and attitudes are of equal importance as their outward actions. Okay, and he wasn't interested in a following of robots who were just going through the basic motions. He wants a kingdom filled with genuinely like authentic people who are sold out to following him. Make sense? And guys, the same is true for us today, right? So I'm going to go ahead and have the worship team come up, um, and I have a question I want you guys to wrestle with. How are you doing at following Jesus in attitude and action? How are you doing at following Jesus in attitude and action? Are you willing to obey Jesus' countercultural commands to the fullest? Are you willing to take him seriously when he says we need to love people with our words and get lust out of our lives? Are you willing even to go back through and read the rest of the chapter and look at all the other things that he says and, and obey those to the fullest as well? Are you willing to obey Jesus' countercultural commands? And what is your attitude as you do that? Why are you doing these things? Why do you do what you do? Do we obey Jesus to get attention from others? Do we obey him to make ourselves look better or feel better about ourselves? Or do we obey humbly because Jesus is our king who loves us? Okay, so I encourage you tonight um, to wrestle with those questions. Here in Kyle we have a culture where in worship, yes, we love to sing and praise Jesus with our voices, but it's also a time where we can really wrestle with the Lord. Um, and if he spoke something to you tonight, like this is a great time. You can journal, you can sit in your seat, and you can pray, you can grab a friend, you can talk to them. Um, but I encourage you, wrestle with that question, um, really think about it, and I'm going to go ahead and pray to close us. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that you are a countercultural God. Thank you that your kingdom does not look like our culture, Lord. Um, God, thank you so much that you call us to like this such high uh, moral ideals, Lord, both in attitude and in action. And Jesus, I just pray that um, we would rise to that occasion and we'd also experience so much of your grace, Jesus. Lord, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>